Our sermon scripture reading is Judges chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, please open it up to Judges chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses... Oh, 12 to 30. So Judges 3, verses 12 to 30. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. And when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor." Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me open us with a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will be present among us to work in our hearts in the way that you need to and desire to, and may we be open and receptive to you, and may your word meet us where we need it this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. By the year 312, 
the Roman Empire had seen about a decade of instability. Towards the end of the, I guess that'd be the third century, the Roman Empire actually had what's called a tetrarchy, which means there were four emperors, kind of two senior emperors and two junior emperors, and surprisingly that worked for a time. Usually when you're an emperor, you don't really want to share your power, but there were four emperors. But when they all passed away, it was during the time of succession that uh, there was a lot of instability and infighting and various men and military leaders vying for the throne. None of them really wanted to be one of four. Uh, Finally, one kind of rose to the top. His name was Constantine, and it was basically between him and one other man who was vying for the throne named Maxentius. Constantine had the military. He had most of the Roman Empire on his side, but Maxentius still had the city of Rome itself, which was kind of seen as untakeable. You could not take the city of Rome. And so it came down to this final battle between Constantine and Maxentius. This is on October 30th, 312. So if you take a history class, you can remember that date. But, and, that, and that's, a, that's a, a famous date because Constantine won and because of that went on to be emperor. But the night and the day before the battle may actually be more decisive and important than the actual battle itself. And the reason is because of a story that's told. And according to the story, Constantine, when he was marching with his armies to Rome to fight Maxentius, as they were marching in the middle of the day, all of a sudden saw this bright writing in the sky. And it was in Greek. And it said, in this you shall conquer. Or or, in this conquer. Go ahead and conquer. We translate it away. And uh, he saw that and said, well, I don't know what that means. And then that night he had a dream. And a voice spoke to him in the dream and said, you shall paint the Christian cross on all of your uh, soldiers' shields. And then he woke up. And so according to Constantine, he viewed that as Jesus Christ coming to him and telling him, you shall conquer in my name. And so he painted the cross of Jesus Christ and all the shields, and then they went on and they defeated Maxentius. And Constantine was the first kind of very notable convert to Christianity, well, first in, in terms of a, a very powerful man who converted to Christianity, and he ended up making Christianity the legal and official Uh, religion of the Roman Empire, and changed the course of history. And at the same time, began the centuries-long debate among Christians over how do we handle power. Specifically, how do we handle secular and state power? And And the reason this has always been a debate for Christians is that within Christianity itself, there is a very deep tension between what we believe and power. And you can see that tension in in just what Constantine did by painting the cross on his shield. What does the shield symbolize for a soldier? Power, might. You, You conquer nations with your weaponry. But what does the cross symbolize? Defeat, humiliation, weakness. The cross actually, rather than standing for human power, stands for the unexpected victory of weakness and humiliation over worldly power. There's a tension there. In the cross, God sent the unexpected, which was his own son. In an unexpected way, Jesus didn't come as a great military leader or an elite or a great political leader. He came as a poor carpenter who lived or was born in a you know, rural village in Israel. And God chose to deliver through the cross in the most unfathomable way you can imagine, which is by his own son dying. That's how God operated. It was unexpected. It was through weakness. It was through defeat. 
And now Christians have debated, okay, so how can, should, ought Christians to use power throughout the centuries? And there's, you know, there's room for good, what's the word, good faith disagreement. And I'm not going to wade into that. But this theme of God using weakness to establish his kingdom, to bring deliverance, it's a theme that's throughout the scriptures. And it's a theme that we see in our story this morning. In fact, it's a theme that you see throughout the book of Judges. We see it really clearly in the story this morning because we have a man who, if you just had worldly standards, would not have been the first person Israel would have picked to deliver them. In fact, he wouldn't have been the second person. He would not have been on the short list of deliverers. In fact, if there was a list of every capable man who could possibly be a deliverer in Israel, Ehud would not have been on that list, and we'll get into why. But yet he was the one that God chose so that all would see that it is not by power or by might, says the Lord, but it is by his spirit. So our outline for us this morning is the first point, a left-handed people. Second point, a left-handed deliverer. A third po- and then our third point, a left-handed reversal. So again, a left-handed people, a left-handed deliverer, a left-handed reversal. First point, a left-handed people. Let me read for us again verses 12 to 14. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now we see this phrase that we saw last week, which is that Israel does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And I mentioned that's going to be a common refrain throughout Judges. But here there's one word that's added to it, which is that again, Israel does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it'll happen again, Israel will do what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And again, and again, Israel had seen God deliver them through Othniel from the king of Mesopotamia, who is a far greater power than any of these ones that have now conquered them. They had seen that only 40 years previously. That's within living memory. Uh, 40 years ago was 1983. Many of you were alive and remember that quite well. Uh, Some of you weren't, such as myself, but I know many people who were alive, and I can ask about that. This is not like some distant, mythic, prehistoric past. I mean, this is God doing an amazing deliverance only 40 years previously. And yet here's Israel turning once again to the gods of Baal and Asherah who had failed them in the past. And after a while, when you read this refrain over and over again in Judges, that again, Israel does what evil in the eyes of the Lord, you begin to wonder, like, what is Israel's deal? Like, what is wrong with them? But I don't want to be unfair to Israel because again, this is not just about Israel, but it also is about us. How many of your sins are sins that you've done over and over and over again? I remember I had a uh, pastor in San Antonio. I heard a story about him that someone asked him if he was giving up something for Lent. And he said, yes, the same laundry list of sins I try to give up every day of the year. And we're just like Israel. We do the same things. And we, and we, and we see that this leads to bitter fruit. We see that this doesn't lead to life. And yet we find ourselves again and again doing the same things Israel's repetitive falling into idolatry reveals something profound about the human heart, which is that we are a left-handed people. 
I'm going to explain what that means. This is our first point, left-handed people. Israel was a left-handed people. Now, what do I mean by left-handed? Well, uh, at Israel's time, as of today, most people were right-handed. That was their dominant hand. Uh, it was the hand that you were stronger with. It's the hand that a soldier would carry his sword with. And so it began to be used as a sign of power. And so when you read the Bible, oftentimes it talks about God working with his right hand, delivering by his right hand, saving by his right hand. At the same time, left-handedness became associated with weakness because your left hand is not your right hand. Now, i got to put a caveat. Obviously, physiologically and biologically speaking, there is no difference between someone who is left-handed and right-handed. They are equally strong and impressive and wonderful and beautiful and made in God's, you know, in God's image. My grandpa was left-handed, and he was probably one of the most impressive men I've ever known. So please don't be offended. That I'm using. So if you're left-handed, I'm really sorry. But this is, the, this, is the, this is the image that we're given, okay? So I'm running with it. But again, left-handedness was, came to signify weakness. <clears throat> and it's funny, we, uh, we may not be quite as right, um, insensitive as, as the ancients were, but we still kind of use this. When we say someone who's very clumsy, they, they have two left feet. Why would having two left feet be any worse than having two right feet? Right? The point is, we're not prejudiced against left-footed people. It's just saying, look, you're, you're, you're kind of a clumsy, clussy person. So, left-handedness means that they're weak. There's something wrong with them. And here's the point. Israel is, again, so to speak, a spiritually left-handed people. They're a weak people who find themselves falling into the same repetitive sins again and again and again, running after the same gods and the same, you know, uh, things that have failed them in the past. They had 40 years to devote themselves to the Lord. He'd given them peace, time they could give to studying God's law and, 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 and living out the commandments, and they didn't do that. And 40 years later, they're running back to the gods who failed them in the first place. And so in one sense, when we see Ehud, it's surprising, because here's a left-handed man, and he's a deliverer. Again, he, this is strange. But in another sense, it's actually very fitting, because you have a left-handed deliverer for a left-handed people. Ehud embodies physically what is true about Israel spiritually and what is true about you and me spiritually because, of course, this is not just about Israel, but all of us are left-handed spiritually, so to speak. We all come to the table. We come to God's presence with something off about us, something broken inside us, something that doesn't work as it ought to. And it's interesting, every human I've talked to that I've had this kind of a de- you know, deep conversation with, Christian, non-Christian alike, Everyone agrees with that. Like, I've never met someone who said, nah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% good. Nothing's wrong inside me. The diagnoses will vary, though. Why is something wrong with all of us? And some people say, well, it's, you know, just self-esteem. We need better self-esteem. Or, or our, our mental health. We need better therapy. Or uh, we just need education. Or we just need to be loved and belonging. And and there's truth in all of those. It's, it's, it's multifaceted. But for Christians, we realize the most fundamental reason that we are left-handed, spiritually speaking, is because of sin. That's what explains the brokenness inside every human. The sin, the, our natural tendency to turn away from God and his goodness and his holiness. And then the consequences of when we turn away from God and his goodness and his holiness. And so here in the story, we have a spiritually left-handed people demonstrating their spiritual poverty and turning again to the very gods who had failed them in the first place. And because God had promised that if they did this, he would have to discipline them, and because, again, God is a good father, 
who will not watch his children run into destruction, and he is also a passionate spouse who will not share his beloved with anyone. He raises up Eglon to come and oppress them and drive them back to him. And a little bit on Eglon, interestingly enough, he was a Moabite king, and the Moabites were actually distant kinsmen of Israelites. Moab descended from Lot, who's a nephew of Abraham. So this is somewhat unusual that Moab is fighting. In fact, when Israel went into the promised land, they weren't allowed to attack Moab because they were their kinsmen. But here's a Moabite, and, and uh, it's very um, noteworthy that the city they take is the city of Palms, which is Jericho. And the reason that's significant is that that was the first city that God had given to Israel when they entered the promised land and crossed the Jordan River. And that of all the cities they conquered was most obviously God's power going before them, right? Like Israel literally shows up, march around the city seven times, and the walls fall down. Like every other city, they had to actually fight. But in this one, like God did it all to show them, I'm the one who goes before you. I'm the one who is doing this for you. And so the fact that this is a city that's taken, that's very significant. It's kind of prodding Israel. Like, see what's going on. See how false these gods are that you've turned to. But it takes 18 years of oppression before Israel cries out to the Lord for help. And then the Lord sends a deliverer. And again, to a spiritually left-handed people, God sends a physically left-handed deliverer. So our first point, a left-handed people. Second point, a left-handed deliverer. Let's read verses 15 to 25. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed and when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So again, here we have a left-handed deliverer. And I actually want to complicate it a little bit. And that I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that he's left-handed in the way we would think. Because literally what the phrase in Hebrew is that his right hand was constricted or his right hand did not work. Now, that can mean a left-handed person. There's later in Judges, there's like 700 left-handed sling throwers, and obviously it's not 700 men with physical disabilities. So it could mean left-handed. Some commentators think it means ambidextrous. Uh, There were warriors who would tie their dominant arm behind their back and train until they could use their non-dominant arm, which gives you a military advantage, because now you can wield a sword with either hand. 
But in our story, and the way it's told, and the theme is drawing out, I think we're supposed to read it literally, that Ehud was not just a man whose left hand was dominant, it's a man who had a physical disability. His right arm did not work. Whether he had an injury, but when it says that he was a man whose right hand was constricted, it means literally he, his right arm didn't work. And so you see what's so surprising about this. He says, here's Ehud, a Benjaminite. Benjamin was a tribe of Israel. Literally means son of my right hand. Here you have a son of my right hand whose right hand does not work. Whose sword-bearing arm does not work. Israel has been crying out for a hero. And this is not exactly the hero that they were crying out for. It's not exactly the one that they meant when they said, God, come deliver us. But what's interesting is that it's his very left-handedness, his very disability that actually enables him to deliver Israel, as we will see. We pick up with Ehud in verse 17. He's part of this group giving tribute to to Eglon. Uh, It doesn't seem to be the case that Israel knows he's a deliverer yet. Ehud seems to have a sense of this in verse 28. He says, God is delivering you through me. But I don't think Israel has any sense that Ehud is their next deliverer. And they send him with this Uh, caravan providing tribute to Eglon. It was probably food offerings because Israel was a farming community, a farming economy. They didn't have money to give, so they gave food. Uh, And also earlier in Deuteronomy, when it uses this word for gifts and tribute, it's referring to a food tribute. That might also explain the comment about why Eglon's so fat. He's been gorging himself on the produce of Israelite farming for 18 years. He's grown very corpulent But what's interesting is, what do they do? They send Ehud with this tribute. Why? Because Israel has been so subjugated, so ground down. They don't expect deliverance. And so they send a man with a disability to tell Eglon, look, you don't have to fear us. You don't need to send any more soldiers. We're not a fearsome opponent. Ehud is part of Israel's submission to Eglon. But while Ehud may have had a disability, he was also very clever and resourceful. And he knew that his very disability, which other people viewed as a weakness, was going to allow him to have access to Eglon that an able-bodied man would not have had. And so he makes, uh, he custom makes a small sword or a large dagger. He straps it to his right thigh where it would be hidden. And then he goes with this group providing tribute. It seems when the first time they give tribute, he's not able to have access to Eglon, and so they head back. But then he goes back by himself to try again. And here again, we see the resourcefulness of Ehud because he comes with this brilliant idea. Hey, I have a a message from God. If you want to get an egomaniac, tell them you have some kind of special message from God for them. And here I think is where we see that it must have been the case that Ehud was a man with a disability because, again, At this time, kings ruled not by democratic systems or respect for institutions, but by brutality and cruelty. Many kings did not die in their old age. They died because they were assassinated. And so you were always aware of assassination attempts. Kings had cupbearers who would try every one of their drinks to make sure it wasn't poisoned. They had people who would try their food. Egon would not have been a total fool. And he would not have allowed one of his enemies in the throne room with him alone unless he viewed Ehud as no threat at all. Likewise, his guards would not have left him alone unless they viewed Ehud as... Basically, they would have had to look at the situation and say, well, worst comes to worst, there's no way this man could kill Egon. 
And so again, what was seen as weakness in Ehud gave him an opportunity to actually draw near to Eglon and kill him without any interference. And not only that, he's then able to calmly walk out of the palace, lock the doors behind him and leave, and no one says a word. Why? Because they just view him as this weak man. And there's a spiritual principle here, which is that God often uses weakness to confound the strong. He often uses those who are weak to bring to nothing those who seem so strong. That's a deep encouragement. Uh, and, 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 and this is such a prevalent theme throughout Scripture. I mean, God does this again and again and again. I mean, you look at the patriarchs. God chose Jacob, the younger brother, the brother who didn't have any facial hair, was kind of a mama's boy, preferred to cook rather than be out hunting with his manly, you know, brother with a lot of hair. God chose Jacob rather than his almost prototypical alpha male brother. Likewise, God chose Moses, the man who had torched his life by burning all relational bridges with Egypt. And then that was the man that God thought fit to make his negotiator with Egypt. God chose David, the youngest of eight brothers who was so insignificant in his father's eyes, he wasn't even invited to dinner when the great prophet Samuel came. And then in Judges, we see God chooses Ehud, a man with a disability, He'll choose, he'll, he will choose Deborah, a woman in a patriarchal society. He'll choose Jephthah, who is a social outcast. He'll choose Gideon, who is a coward. And then he'll choose Samson, who is a playboy with no self-discipline. And God chooses the unexpected. He works oftentimes through weakness. And again, I think this is such an encouragement for us because it doesn't matter how impressive we may look on the outside, all of us have some sense that we're pretty weak. And there's some areas of our lives that we, we don't feel up to snuff. We feel like we're imposters. And the great news is that God uses us not in our strength but in our very weakness. And he does us for a reason. God uses the weak not just to, not just to be funny, because it is kind of funny sometimes. He uses the weak for a reason. It's this. So that we will know that is, as Zechariah 4.6 says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God works through our weakness. He works through weak people like you and like me. So we can know that all the power is God's. He's the one who does it all. The glory is his. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. As humans, we're so quick to point out like the human part of a, of a story, to po- point out like the human strength, right? So you, you meet someone who's very successful in their career, who's very successful in ministry, who's very successful in their parenting. You want to know how they did it. Write a book. Speak at a conference. So God uses the weak to teach us in our hearts. He, he uses us in our weakest points and humbles us at our strong points so that we can feel in the depths of our hearts that, oh, it is not by my strength or by my power or by your strength or power, but by God's spirit. That's how he works. So that we can, as Paul says, learn to boast in the Lord alone. Now, as I kind of alluded to in the introduction, the spiritual theme of left-handed deliverers that finds its completion in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the ultimate left-handed deliverer. Isaiah, when he was prophesying about Jesus in Isaiah 53, 3, he describes Jesus as this way. He says, Jesus, 
He was despised and rejected by people. One who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised and we considered him insignificant. When Jesus came, one of his own disciples, Nathaniel, when he heard where Jesus was from, said, anything good come from Nazareth? You know, translate that to, really? Nazareth? Hmm. None of the elites of his day followed him. The people who followed Jesus were the poor and the outcasts. They were the ones who found comfort in his words and his teaching. And then Jesus, of course, he, he didn't win by a great military conquest, but he died on a cross. He delivered in the most left-handed way you can imagine through a humiliating crucifixion. And once again, it was to show not by human might, not by human power, but by God's spirit. Who can accomplish a salvation for a spiritually left-handed people like you and me who again and again and again do his evil in the eyes of the Lord? Well, Jesus is the final and ultimate left-handed deliverer. He showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that salvation is from God alone. Only God could have saved in that way. So again, a recap, a left-handed people, and for a left-handed people, God raised up a left-handed deliverer, Ehud. And our third and final point is a left-handed reversal, verses 26 to 30. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols, and he escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And so they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So again, God shows that it's not by human power or might, but by his spirit. He uses weakness in his divine, mysterious sovereignty to accomplish what the strong cannot accomplish. But in the process of using the weak, he also reverses all of our expectations by revealing that those that we think are strong, those that we think are impressive by worldly standards, aren't that impressive or strong. Again, we have the great Eglon, a superb leader. He was able to rally the Canaanite nations in a way that no one before him had been able to, and he was able to defeat Israel, totally subdue them. Israel would have viewed Eglon as a terrifying man. And yet, Eglon is a fool. He allows his own enemy in a throne room with none of his guards present. Only a man who is drunk on his own sense of importance would be that foolish, even if you felt like you could handle him. Why would you take that risk? And the great Eglon is then killed. In fact, he's, he also falls for this really ridiculous trickery that uh, Ehud says, I have a special message just for you. And he falls for it. Like, My kids fall for stuff like that. I have a special task just for you, and I'm not sure your brother or sister can handle it. I've prepared it, and I think you're ready. It's called the dishes. And they fall for it, and Eglon did too. 
And this great Eglon who Israel was afraid of, I mean, <laughs> dies while his servants think he is on the toilet. There lay their Lord, dead on the floor. That's human power and human might, revealed by the great reversal that God brings through the weakness of Ehud. Or the Moabite army, again, this is the army that conquered Israel. They were this elite fighting force, and they're described as every man was strong and able-bodied in verse 29. But what's interesting is, is that word strong, it can mean strong, vigorous, energetic. It can also just mean fat. And uh, I think there's a double meaning here. That Yeah, this seemed to be this strong fighting force, but like their lord, Eglon, they had had 18 years of gorging on Israel's tribute. And so they had eaten one too many barbecue sandwiches with fries and the full, you know, in a large shake. When it came time to run for their lives, they were huffing and puffing. They weren't able to keep up. This elite fighting force, it turned out to be just a bunch of middle-aged men with beer bellies. The great reversal that God and his... Irony and his humor and his left-handed deliverer brings about. When God delivers again through his weakness, he always brings these kinds of reversals. And we see these going back to the beginning of, of, again, our story here. We see the first reversal, which is that we are left-handed people just like Israel. That's the first reversal God brings about. Uh, you have, I mean, you probably have dreams for your future, or think back to when you were young and the dreams you had for your life and how you wanted to go, and I'm guessing you were probably the protagonist in that story. You were the hero. And there's some level and that's just natural how we think that way. And so we start out when we're young and we want, to, we want, to, we want our lives to matter. We want to make a, a difference in the world. We want to affect change, lead to a better world. The problems are out there and we want to address them. And the great reversal God brings is that the problems are not out there. The problem is inside us. The problem is that we are spiritually left-handed people. That's the first reversal that God brings about. But then the second reversal God brings about through his, his work is, again, the deliverance does not come in the way we think it will. It does not come through the power of humans, through our own ingenuity, our own willpower, Salvation comes from God alone, period. Only he can deliver us. And he demonstrates that again and again by using those that we think are weak, methods that we think don't work. He uses those to do the great works of the ages. And of course, he sent his own son as a quintessential left-handed deliverer to deliver in the most left-handed way imaginable. And then this third reversal, which is what we're seeing in this third point, is it, as Jesus delivers in left-handed ways, he reveals the left-handed nature of all the things that we think are so impressive and strong. The great Eglon, king of Moab, is revealed to be a fool and dies in humiliation. His army, the Moabite army, are revealed to just be frat bros past their prime. As God works in his mysterious ways, the strength of the world, the pride of humanity, our pride is, is humbled. As God works by using the weak in the world to shame the strong, like our, our glory is dimmed so that we can realize there is no one great but God himself. God alone is great. God alone can deliver. You and I were ashes and dust. 
whom God has bestowed his love upon and therefore made beautiful. But God alone is great. So where does that leave us? What does that lead us to? Psalm 148, I think, puts it well. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Let me pray for us. God, you alone are worthy of praise and worship. You use weakness to confound our strength, to show us that you alone are strong and worthy of our praise. May we be a people who, who thinks nothing of our own abilities and thinks everything of you. May we be a people who praise you and worship you all the days you've given us to walk this earth. May you do that work in our hearts by your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.